Thanks for making time to check out the Black Studies Podcast. My name is Daniel McNeil, and in today's episode, I'm joined by Sally El-Sayed to host a talk with Damvia Singh Bra and Francesca D'Amico Cuthbert about Black music, cultural production, and much more. Danvia Singh Bra is a writer, researcher, and teacher focusing on questions of race, culture, aesthetic, politics, and theory from the mid-20th century to the present. He has published two books, Beefy Tunes, Dean Blunt Edit, and Tech Life Ghettoville Esky, The Sonic Ecologies of Black Music in the Early 21st Century. Danvia is also a member of two research performance projects, The Mardi Gras Listening Collective and Lover's Discourse. And Francesca D'Amico Cuthbert is a hip-hop historian, curriculum strategist, consultant, and creative. Her research explores the history of hip-hop culture and rap music, the creative industries, and histories of anti-blackness in the music marketplace. Her forthcoming book project, A History of American Hip-Hop Knowledge Production in the Era of Mass Incarceration, outlines how black rappers constructed complex ethnographies of urban spaces, transformed dispositions of power, and unmasked the modes and mechanisms of a persistent and haunting coloniality in the afterlives of American slavery. Currently, Dr. D'Amico Cuthbert serves as a researcher on the fresh, bold, and so-deaf hip-hop feminist intervention project and on the Education Committee for the Universal Hip-Hop Museum. On a personal note, I'm really looking forward to this conversation between two exceptional scholars. I met Dan Via at a conference about Black Studies in the UK, and I've learned a lot from him about creative and collaborative knowledge making as we've participated in each other's classes and writing projects about race, sport, and national identity. I've also learned a tremendous amount from Francesca, by working with her on conference panels and documentary films on mixed race identities. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the readers of her spectacular doctoral dissertation on race, power, and the rise of American rap music. Francesca and Danvia hadn't met each other before our conversation, but kindly shared some words, sounds, rhythms they'd like to think with and through. Danvia selected Every Day, Better Days Ahead by Gil Scott Heron, as well as Gil Scott Heron's book, The Last Holiday. Francesca selected Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation and Most Deaf's Mathematics. Hi, Danvia. Hi, Francesca. Thanks for joining us on the Black Studies podcast and for sharing some of the words, sounds, and rhythm that are stimulating your writing, teaching, scholarship, and politically infused acts of pleasure. Perhaps we can start with you, Danvia. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you selected work from Gil Scott Heron? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, partly it's as a provocation to myself, in a way. Um, for a number of years, you know, in the kind of twilight hours of a night you know kind of when it's far past sensible people's bedtime and and way before any sensible people wake up i've been putting on gil scott heron records um quite regularly and also when i happened you know in those hours to have some company with friends um i've been talking quite extensively about gil scott heron and kind of playing and talking about him quite obsessively uh, and this wasn't a new discovery. I mean, I lived, I've been listening to his music for years, but over the past, I guess, five years, um, I kept on returning to his his records and the records he put out with Brian Jackson. So in a way, what I'm trying to do now is, in a way, um, force myself to turn some of those kind of nighttime thoughts into something a bit more public. So I'm using any occasion I have to force me to, to, to give some of the kind of uh, 
kind of more kind of sketchy ramblings um in your in your private moments or with friends give it give it a bit more shape um and so this is an occasion i'm glad to have this occasion to kind of um get me to do that in a in a in a in a setting with 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 peers and and comrades um but specifically i mean those two tracks i think uh well they're there's some obvious reasons that they kind of represent twin points of uh, Heron's recording career, more or less at the beginning, more or less at the end. Um, you know, he's he's a very young man when he records every day on his first album, and um, on uh, for Better Days Ahead, which is a kind of uh, a, a reperformance of a of a um, a track from an album he released in the eighties. Um, this is a kind of uh, the album he he put that out on nothing new is with a um um a british music label xl who are kind of in this process of representing gil scott heron to to the wider public um but what i find noticeable about both those performances is um the consistency between uh, from the moment of being a very young man to being a much older man older person um the consistency in approach method um ambience and atmosphere um that he takes to to the the songwriting and song performance um aspect and they're, they're it's, i think that they also represent dimensions of heron's kind of um art craft that are often not discussed you know he's often thought about as the 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 godfather of hip-hop which you know, he was a very, um, if you read interviews or, or listen to interviews with him, extremely sharp wits and very kind of um, playful and kind of could put you, keep you on your toes. And when he's in an interview, he's when he's asked about uh, this, this role of the godfather of hip hop, he says, you know, I've been accused and blamed for many things, but I'll, I will not take the fall for that. <laughs> and, it's, and it's kind of this, this, this interesting kind of contestation he has with the interviewer, the interviewer is trying to really press him on his relationship to hip hop and he keeps on slipping away and and kind of refusing and rejecting it and the the point he's he's often made is that you know his work is much broader and not that there's any problem with having a kind of uh, uh, um, uh, a kind of being a genesis point one of the genesis many genesis points for hip hop but he he's adamant that um uh, his body of work in the in the sense that is trying to uh function as a type of social music is try it look really tries to um deal with a, a very broad breadth of of um black diasporic experience so yeah that's the part of the reasons why i i um uh suggested those two tracks oh it's so wonderful thanks so much because it helps us to think about um crepuscular habits right i love how you talk about gil scott heron's wits I'm thinking a lot about what it means to be 100% ironic or appear 100% ironic and 100% sincere at the same time, right? And and Gil is someone who can certainly pull that off. And I'm also wondering maybe to extend and think through some of the things that you're saying, and particularly when we place it in conversation with um, maybe Janet Jackson and other performances that are clearly worthy, right? Um, what do you think it means for someone to be sensible and serious, right? Because I'm thinking about that, like in terms of the, you start off by helping us to think about listening to these tracks out of work time, right? So in the in in the nighttime with friends, and there's off and you're inviting us to think about Gil Scott Heron as playful. In what way does he also help us to f expand maybe our notion of? what it is to be serious and what it is to be sensible. Yeah. Um, I guess there's two ways you could approach that question. I think one deals with some of the, let's say, the context um, and, the, and, the, and the politics of, of Heron's um, um, artistic project, but also I think in some way the formal dimensions of it. Um, I think the politics of it, so I can't recall, and I'm trying to dig out the comment, but I recall hearing once, so someone making a comment about his work or a, 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 a kind of real in, fascinating critical insight. And so, you know, after civil rights and after black power and the particular kind of forms of 
political and social regression that that appeared in the in the from the 70s onwards to kind of uh try to demolish any of the 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 um the infrastructures whether they were uh, concrete infrastructures or infrastructures of feeling that have been built up through civil rights and black power um there's a sense in which well what happened to black popular music after those defeats its response particularly in the us i think um there's it's different in different contexts this turn to funk and r&b which is no problem at all you know I'm a big, deep listener to funk and R&B, but as a turn to the sensuous as a kind of recovery project, right, to, to, to kind of deal with that, that, that process. Whereas someone said, well, Gil Scott Heron was the only artist who gives you a real account of defeat and looks defeat and pain in the face, right, uh, social and political pain as well as personal pain. And he really gives an account of, of like, what... Um, uh, a collective psyche after, uh, you know, the deaths of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, the kind of uh, destruction of the Black Panthers, uh, the the kind of collapse of a kind of almost cultural nationalism after those energies had really kind of subsided, you know, been either subsided on their own terms or subsided because of the particular pressures the state put on them. He 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 faces up to that. Um, I don't say that funk is a diversion. Obviously, funk gives you a different possibility of politics, or R and B does. Right? I'm not saying that at all. Um, I'm not trying to set up a kind of hard distinction between the two. But Heron certainly gives an account of defeat. But in terms of the sensible, I think one thing that's interesting about Heron, if you, uh, or one interesting fact is he wrote a novel before he wrote, put out his first album, and it, it, in between his first album and his second album, he wrote a second novel. Um, and this is firstly as a very young person. He was extremely young, still at still at um, university. Um, but I think there's a sense in which. So this idea of when you read a, a reading a novel, you know, is is an enriching, wonderful experience. But it's also an an individual experience, right? It's very difficult to read novels in a group environment, right? So I think something that um, and 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 you know to to get what uh, the the particular richness and and complexity that a novel can give you uh, to get that in a collective environment, you're always doing that individually alone. And you might discuss the novel or novels with other people, but the actual experience of reading it is always done alone. And the fact that Heron was, I wouldn't say a writer first, but he was definitely driven by writing as a as a particular form. Um, he's trying to bring something of the complexity of novels to the song form. And I think what he's able to do is um, bring an economy to narrative storytelling and, and, bring, and, and allow it to flow through the song form. So he's very much focused on simplicity and economy um, and allowing kind of stories to, to bring up their own levels of complexity without any seeming formal kind of innovation so i think there's there's two ways in which sensible um and sensibility appear in in, in heron's uh, work yeah i think it's um uh interesting how you speak about how music gives a look into the psyche during those political movements i think francesca you also speak to it in the canadian context how um like black rappers give a realistic depiction into um the way life in canada is um and being black in canada maybe you can speak to that a little bit and give the canadian context sure uh, so i think you know to take the canadian context in comparison to the american there's very unique differences i think in some ways uh because of you know national relationships to race and how race functions in terms of you know building the nation uh and so you have this very interesting phenomenon going on in Canada where um, because of the language of multiculturalism, the perception of what that means in terms of the nation building project, there there doesn't appear to be the same kind of uh, function in rap music, at least at least on, you know, the, at the commercial level. So whereas the, you know, the United States really makes uh, in, in terms of rap music, rap expression, rap really comes into the global consciousness because of the fact that it's an incredibly political music, right? It's, it's making these political interventions, asking questions about the state. It's asking incredibly philosophical questions about what it means to be human, right? These aren't just political questions. Uh, 
Canada doesn't seem to be doing the same kind of things uh, at the mainstream level. So you really have to dig deep. Uh, you know, as a comparison point, Canada is still overwhelmingly an independent market as opposed to the United States, right? That there seems to have been a flood of uh, MCs that come into the mainstream in a way that really doesn't happen and hasn't yet quite happened in the same capacity in the Canadian context. So when you do have to, when you're searching for those, uh, for that political commentary, you really have to, you know, delve deep into what we would call the underground, right? Not really what is above, seemingly above ground, uh, which, you know, is an interesting commentary about what it means uh, to be Canadian or to think of oneself as Canadian. Uh, but where we do see examples um, of a real questioning of what it means uh, to be Canadian, to interject in the political conversation about nationhood, I think one of the best examples is this recording uh, by Maestro Fresh West, who's considered, you know, the godfather. We're speaking about godfathers of hip hop in Canada. You know, it would be Maestro. Um, and so he has this song called Nothing at All, where for for some of the you know first moments in um, you know, Canada's recording history, we start to see artists talk about Canada as this racial colonial regime, you know, the presence of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, some of, you know, the, the logics underpinning, uh, you know, how scientific racism circulates uh, at the level of the academy, right? Uh, Maestro's talking about professors in his music. Uh, and, and these, you know, the, the ways in which uh, Canada, you know, uses figures, to memorialize a sense of what it means to be Canadian. So he talks about uh, white athletes and he talks at length about sports figures, uh, what it means to be a white athlete versus what it means to be a black athlete uh, and how, you know, those experiences are really uh, incredibly different in terms of a, of a memorializing. And then when something does happen to an, to an athlete that compromises uh, the perception of them in the public sphere, uh, the ways in which those athletes are disproportionately treated, right, is quite apparent. And so this tells us really interesting things about race and nationhood. Uh, but these moments in Canadian rap music history are, are not, you know, I, I would say at the mainstream level, not necessarily at the underground level, but the mainstream level are few and far between. And I think that's, uh, I, I think it tells us uh, quite an interesting thing about the ways in which uh, Canadian meaning-making, identity-making function, and uh, the extent to which Canada is willing to kind of look at it itself in its face, right? to acknowledge its racial um, colonial past and the ways in which those practices, means and modes of means, uh, sorry, means and mo um, modes and meaning, I should say, uh, continue and stretch forward, right, into the present. Uh, this is something that Canada continues to be challenged with and something that they really are unwilling to discuss and face. Uh, so I think those are some of the more important differences in terms of the way that the nation takes up hip hop and, and the interventions and interruptions that hip hop is intending to, to force the nation um, to engage with. I love the way you're helping us to think about individual self-fashioning as well as collective liberation right? and we're also thinking through the myths that sustain our ideas of nationhood and I'm wondering Francesca if you could maybe say a little bit more about what it meant for you to be located in Canada and to engage with say the music and the music videos of Janet Jackson or the creative artistry of most death, um, not just what were they communicating to you, but how were you reframing them to meet local needs? So I would say I, I met I met these two songs at different times of my life. So of course um, I had more time to live with Rhythm Nation by Janet Jackson. Uh, and and I want to make a specific point to say, you know, the, the full title is Rhythm Nation 1814. I think that's an important point. Uh, so, you know, I met that song as a child and it had a very different meaning for me as uh, as a 10 year old than it did, uh, you know, as I as I moved throughout life. And I revisited it at different times and then came to it uh, in, in my studies. Right. It, the the song evolved. Uh, Mathematics by most deaf came 10 years later and I was already, you know, um, I was already a young adult and, and built like growing in my political consciousness. So I had a very different relationship to the two. But um, to start with Janet Jackson, I'll say that for me, 
what it's come to mean to me is that it's a battle cry, really, uh, where you see pleasure and the impetus to dance and move, meeting this desire to really think and reimagine uh, the production of space. Uh, so, you know, thinking about the nation, what does that mean in the consciousness of Americans, but also to think about the systems that bind and organize Americans. So on the one hand, I think Janet invites us to rethink what nationhood means. And so for those of you that are familiar with the song, uh, it has this interesting riff on the American national anthem uh, in the lyrics of the Star Spangled Banner, uh, given that they are actually derived from a poem that's written in 1814. And if you actually delve deeper into uh, the title of Janet's song, this is one of the things that I really admire about Black music, is that there are so many meanings to extract, right? Uh, you really have to study uh, songs, right? And so this is, you know, particularly as someone, as a child, I was really in love with liner notes, right? And so it was like, I had to read all of this information to study what are all the meanings that we could possibly extract. So when you look at the title 1814, it isn't simply this reference uh, to this 1814 poem, but actually, um, when you look at the numbers 18 and 14 separately, they're actually representative of the letter R uh, for rhythm and N for nation as they're actually ordered in the alphabet. So on the one hand, she's asking us to think about this history of the United States, right? What does it mean to revisit the anthem uh, and, and perhaps recreate an anthem for a new generation? Uh, but on the other hand, I think Janet's using uh, voice the drum machine um, processes such as sampling to really engage us in rebellious movement and collectivity, right? What does it mean to move together? Uh, so, you know, in doing so, she's creating this song where it's really organized by this incredibly danceable and syncopated rhythm that in its own moments, uh, the drum actually becomes the main character in the song, right? Because you have these moments where you have these incredible and complex drum, uh, drum breaks. Um, but then she's also asking us to use that com those complications to challenge the singular narrative of America as one that is, you know, a, a nation that's supposedly a city upon a hill. And this attempt to gesture toward a rhythm that is multiple, that is complex in its composition, I think actively challenges the singularity of America's dominant narrative, one that we know is rooted, right, and continues to be a racial colonial regime. And for me, I also take Rhythm Nation with the preamble. So right before the song, there's actually an interlude that's called uh, The Pledge, right? Where she states, and I'll quote if you don't mind, because uh, I think it's such a powerful statement to open a record, right? Because that's, uh, you know, in the days in which we played songs, in the order in which the artist intended them, right? Order really mattered. So in, so in this preamble, you know, she says, we are a nation with no geographic boundaries bound together through our beliefs. We are like-minded individuals sharing a common vision, pushing toward a, a world rid of color lines. And I think in, in creating this counter-narrative in a lot of ways, she's challenging thinkers to rethink how we establish a collectivist ethos. So for Janet, this reordering is really uh, one that is thinking about what it means to be truly ungeographic. Right. Uh, as, as Catherine McKittrick puts it. So this idea that placemaking is not about establishing a knowable geography, this America that we've come to know, but it's one about, you know, rethinking what it means to have like minded ideas with others, to, to share a set of principles, uh, to work in this rebellious spirit that's intended to disrupt and, and even abolish, in this case, color lines. And I think uh, one of the many beautiful components of black music is and again, this act of multiple meaning making. So in, in the title Rhythm Nation, we can take Rhythm Nation to mean a number of things, right? It could mean the power and the centrality of drums in Black music making traditions. Uh, it can be the act of voices joining in a chorus to collectively create a pattern, right? As she says. Uh, it can also be, I think, the song and by extension the album is really an expression, an ethos of care, right? Where... That care is emanating from, on the one hand, uh, the heart, right? Because so much of the record is about loving each other, caring, supporting one another as a community. Uh, but it's also about the mind, because Janet really comes into a particular kind of consciousness in the late 1980s, uh, one in which I think is deeply inspired in some ways, perhaps consciously and unconsciously, by hip hop, right? The turn that hip hop is taking at that time. Uh, and so you have this, um, this care emanating from both the heart and the mind, 
organs in the individual body and to some extent the collective body, right, that are about recreating rhythm, a rhythm that is necessary to live. So I think that's that's really how I've come to think about rhythm nation um, over the course of my, you know, my life, really. Uh, mathematics, on the other hand, again, I came to it in the late 1990s. Uh, and for me, I was in particular awe with the ways that most deaf uses metaphor to both reveal and conceal. Uh, and I think the intention here is so that the listener can delve more, you know, deep, more, I should say, delve deeper uh, to be provoked into this, you know, attempt to ascend into a higher consciousness about the meanings of life. Um, and so as a historian, I think I was also inspired by his insistence uh, that if we were to truly understand the nature of systems and structures that, that we ourselves find ourselves in, we have to study. We have to engage in this deep and rigorous uh, kind of studying, hypothesizing, and we also have to be unmoved in our capacity to ask very provocative and even dangerous questions. And so I think, you know, remembering how the recording starts, right? He, you know, The recording starts really with uh, a reference to what is called supreme mathematics, which are the teachings that come out of the nation of gods and earths or otherwise known as the five percenters. Uh, and it's really this system of numerology where numbers are given particular meanings. And so he starts every verse by making reference to the numbers one through 10, right? And every number means something in particular. So the number one means knowledge, right? And um, according to the 5% nation, knowledge is really the foundation of all existence. And you gain knowledge by observing, uh, by learning, by respecting one another's knowledge. Or alternatively, you know, the number two um, is, is a reference to wisdom or what people, what 5%ers would call wise dome. And dome, of course, being a reference to the brain in hip hop, right? Um, and so to, uh, to collect wisdom, to gain wisdom, uh, is this attempt of both reflecting your knowledge uh, and, and enacting wise words, right? Speaking wise words so that we circulate that, that information. And so uh, for me, throughout the recording, uh, I think most deaf uses supreme mathematics to do that kind of concealing and revealing. Uh, and from that, what we hear are conversations about, you know, topics as wide as, you know, what are the mysteries of the universe? Uh, what's the power of biblical narrative? Uh, but also, you know, the more the, the more pressing topics that we often hear rappers talk about, which is, you know, punitive carceral logics, uh, the brutal architectures of capitalism and, and this process of surveillance. And so for me, there are a couple of things that I extract from the song. Um, on the one hand, I think most that's provocation. There's a point in the record where he says it's a numbers game, but things don't add up somehow. Right. And then he goes on to utter phrases like, uh, like 69 billion in the last 20 years spent on national defense, but folks still live in fear. So he's using these numbers to, in, in a sense, ask us if we, you know, if we are supposed to be living in, a, in an environment that is more safe uh, because the state has mobilized all of these resources, why is it that we still live in fear? Right. And these are questions to to provoke us into actually thinking about what does that mean? Right. To ask more questions. And the answer I think that most stuff often gives is that there's this insistence that we need to continue to remain vigilant. Right. And so he uses a lot of references to sleeping and being awake. He'll talk about, you know, keep your alarms set, uh, evacuate your sleep. Right. Because in part, he is saying that while we as humans live under one universal law, there's ample evidence, historical and in the contemporary that the powerful do not always act in principled and ethical ways. And so we have to keep them on their toes. Um, and so I think for me, one of the most, uh, one of the things that, that really uh, awoken me to the power of hip hop culture, right? And I think this is a song that really pushed me into loving hip hop, um, was there's, there's an assessment that Most Def makes really close to the end of the song where he says, um, numbers are hard and real and they never have feelings, but you push too hard. Even numbers got limits. Why did one straw break the camel's back? Here's the secret, the million other straws underneath it. Uh, and so here, most deaf is again, like a lot of hip hop artists asking us to have inquisitive and suspecting spirits that really push us uh, to a knowledge that is beyond the superficial. And for me as a historian, you know, we're really preoccupied with delving into the, the precise details of things. Uh, and, and Mostef is saying to us, uh, any situation, any scenario is more than its minor and routine actions. In fact, 
when we look at history, the large, uh, unpredictable, sudden reactions that uh, people have to the state, the state has to people, uh, these are really, the outcomes are ones that are cumulative actions. And so we have to pay attention to the cycles of things, right? And that brings me back to, of course, where the nation, the cycles, the patterns, right? This is, historians are preoccupied with those things. So these are some of the things I think that I've extracted uh, from both of those recordings. Um, and it really led me to pursue certain lines of questioning when it comes to Black music as a result. No, it's amazing to help us to think about a hermeneutics of suspicion, right? Fanon's famous injunction to always ask questions. But also, I was really struck by how you were talking about um, insinuating rhythms, right? So I'm thinking of, um, again, we, we, we've talked in many of our conversations uh, with Francesca and with Andrea. Uh, about the cultural critic Paul Gilroy, right? and one of the really haunting passages in the Black Atlantic is when he talks about the laudable desire to remain as close as possible to the insinuating rhythms of everyday life, and the admirable belief that intellectuals should cultivate the capacity to read the signs in the streets in defiance of contemporary pressures to retreat into a contemplative state. And I'm wondering if we could push some of the really incisive things that you're inviting us to think about in terms of perhaps our identity as historians to also think about what it is to be an intellectual, right? What it is to think about a utopian belief that black musicians can conquer greedy and hostile con culture industries uh, with their rebel spirit. A hope that black musicians and critics might smuggle moments of dissidence into the merely professional and routine. But also how we respond to people who feel that black music has lost its moral authority, that it's lost its countercultural stance and is in decline, right? So perhaps this is one way to think about what we do, right, as intellectuals, but also what are we hearing in contemporary music? Are we providing a space? Are we hearing music that speaks to a changing same of racism? Um, particularly, I loved how, Francesca, you were talking about the idea of needing to stay awake, but it's also about being mindful of the proliferation of dispiriting, alienating labor that encourages us to be in a state of distraction, right? To not pay attention. Um, we're also thinking through how law is associated with racial domination um, and how we might step audaciously into the past to recover historical sensibility and imagine a future where racial hierarchies are abolished. Um, when you're engaging with contemporary black music or most deaf, Janet Jackson, Gil Scott Heron, are they providing you with a sense that how we can retain an understanding and a belief in making hope practical? Um, I mean, there's a lot in that, in the, um, to think about Daniel in that in that comment, I guess one one way I would go about uh, responding, um, maybe not answering, but just responding and and kind of thinking alongside like in your slipstream, as it were, is to say that um, in the in the in the envi professional environments that we're in, in the institutional environments we're in, I think we're caught in a in a strange double bind. Um, whereby actually um, we're intellectuals in despite, in despite our profession or in spite of our profession rather than because of it. Um, I don't think intellectualism is actually something that's um, uh, is capable of being fostered in the, in, the, in the contemporary university. And that's perhaps why um, um, those of us who have a kind of similar sensibility gather together because we're often studying particularly musicians or artists in many forms, because I think they're offering us 
a particular type of uh, insight into intellectual practice that we're we think we desire, right? And I think, um, and I think, um, I think that's perhaps why we're um, appeal and att attracted to um, forms of uh, black musical practice, diaspora black diasporic musical practice, because it gives an insight into a certain type of intellectuality that we we think should needs to flourish or, or could actually kind of give us an, a, a better way of 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 uh thinking about the world living in the world um but i think we also need to recognize you know the um musicians don't live in utopia they live in the same world as we live in right um and so it's worth you know also asking musicians you know about the particular difficulties of their own professional lives like the the difficulties of reproducing themselves as musicians. Um, and to develop that a bit further, you know, um, I think it's, it's far too easy and it's, it's, um, it's far too easy to claim that uh, black diasporic music has somehow lost some of its, its critical energies. Um, I think if you take that position, you're we're not really kind of um, paying close enough attention because you maybe we're asking the wrong questions um, um, of the music because you know that we if we take the idea of the changing same seriously, um, if we take the, it as seriously as a kind of principle or, or method for thinking about uh, diasporic critical and and creative and political practice, then we have to understand how the form changes in anticipation of and in response to a shifting set of conditions. Okay, so there are a particular set of conditions from, let's say, the post-war period through to the mid-1970s, which meant that Black diasporic music kind of uh, uh, generated itself in particular ways. Now, those conditions change. And actually, if you listen to a lot of what's going on in, in Janet Jackson's music and the producers on that album are key to that sound, you know, uh, um, um, uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And they're taking, they're taking, they're borrowing a lot from a series of underground sounds, such as Chicago House, New Jack Swing, uh, this new kind of, uh, uh, this new, at the time, new use of synthesized drum patterns. To, 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 to generate a new type of creative uh, template, a new kind of sensuous template for, for the music. So I think what we've got to do is, if the music seems to be posing us difficulties, is really ask, well, maybe we're asking the wrong questions. Um, and maybe we're, we're, we're not, we're, we're listening using a, an, uh, uh, we need to rethink our habits of listening. So actually, something I'd something that I've been thinking about in terms of, or not even thinking about. I mean, it's apparent if you if you pay attention to musical discourse and the music that's coming out, that actually, you know, the the continent has returned. Africa is back in and back driving the 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 driving force in in, in the cutting edge of um, diasporic music. And it might be that you know, Europe and North America has kind of become stultified and stale. Uh, in its in its black diasporic music forms and um, something that's really energized me and a lot of people who who are whose opinion I value are kind of particular urban electronic music forms in coming out of South Africa. So one would be Amapiano, um, or the other one, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, but Quam or G Q O M coming out of Durban, where you get a different type of a different proposition, I guess, for the rhythm nation. Um, so I think actually, you know, it's it's uh, it's uh, um, it's our duty to you know to deprovincialize ourselves, both in terms of our methods, but also in how we how we listen, right, and what we listen to. So if stuff isn't going on in our particular nation state or in you know the the traditional way we think of diaspora in this kind of triangle uh, between kind of North America, the Caribbean, and and uh, and Britain or something like that, that we perhaps need to rethink our deprovincialize our habits of listening because you know it might just be that that that, that we're not we're not um, you know we're not pushing ourselves hard enough. I, I think in terms of the role, you know, if we think about ourselves as um, historians or scholars or intellectuals, 
I think there's a lot we could learn from not just the music itself, but the practice of creating music. So, I, you know, when we think about uh, lyricists in particular, and, and this is also true of instrumentalists, uh, but most especially lyricists, uh, you know, in hip hop, for example, you aren't just thinking about the narrative that you're going to cultivate, but there's multiple things at work, right? You're, you're having to think about, you know, how, how can these words rhyme? What are the cadences? What's the pattern, the flow? Uh, you know, how am I going to fit it into to the beat, right? The instrumental. Uh, how am I going to tell the story? What story do I want to tell? There's a lot of, you know, sitting and meditating on what is going to happen in that piece of art. And that kind of rigorous sitting with something and sitting in it, uh, which is really important to the process of making music, is something that I think we can we can look to as a, as a kind of inspiration as as um, academics and intellectuals, because you know it's certainly one of the things that I actually appreciate the most about being a historian: the, the capacity that we have, the ability that in some ways the academy still allows us to have. Um, interestingly, if you look at across at other disciplines, uh, is that historians can sit for a very long time with things. And it's something that uh, is still actually appreciated and allowed in our discipline in a way that doesn't seem to transpire with others, right? Uh, for, you know, in other cases, there's this rush to produce. And I don't think that historians feel that same kind of pressure. In fact, the longer it takes you the richer the work, right? And the more rewarding for both the person who's creating it, but also the, those who are who are taking it in and thinking about what it is that we're, we have to offer. So there's certainly things that we can extract from the music making process and, and translate them uh, because I think musicians can, can teach us a lot about what it means to meditate on ideas and, and process. Uh, I think in terms of the question of whether Black music has lost its way, I think it's, it depends on where you're looking. Um, so, you know, I made reference to, you know, above ground, underground, because, uh, you know, if we, it doesn't matter what genre we're looking at, right? There are certain things happening above ground in the mainstream that perhaps speak to things like uh, the ways in which the state wants us to imagine Blackness that aren't necessarily happening underground, right? That there's this more imaginative, explorative, um, deep thinking that's happening in the underground. And it, it's you know, the, the pressure lies on us as listeners to find it. It isn't that Black music has lost its way. It's that it may be in different locations. So this is one of the great things about being, you know, in, in, this, uh, in this new world of consuming music where you can, in interesting ways, it recalls what we do in, in, in hip-hop culture, most especially, but also in other genres, this, this process of digging in the crates. This is not an unfamiliar process to people who, who enjoy Black music, right? Where you're going on this trip, you're venturing through the past, right? This, this, these images that we have, for example, of artists like Jay Dilla, right? Who are in record stores and just sifting through all kinds of genres, right? We, uh, the, the pressure is on us to do that work, to find, uh, to find where that kind of music is because it still exists. Um, and so there's, there's this assumption that because the mainstream hasn't taken it up, that it doesn't, it isn't the largest voice, that somehow it isn't there. And I think that that's, uh, that's just simply not true, uh, to put it bluntly. Um, and I think that when we do that hard work of digging in the crates, of, of looking and seeking and finding, uh, then what we'll see is that, you know, uh, as Danvers already commented, uh, Black music is always responding to the changing scene, right? Black musicians have always been conscious of the very things that we as you know academics and intellectuals spend our days talking about, right? These the, the, the power of the colonial racial regime, the, the haunting of it. Black music musicians have always been conscious of it and they continue to respond to it in such a timely manner. That's another thing, right, that makes us different than musicians. We don't quite have the same capacity because of how academic thought functions and how we produce our work to respond in, in an equally timely manner. Right. And so, again, that's another thing that I think is deeply inspiring about the work that musicians are, are doing. They're able to take in the information, to process it and then create this output that is, that's so quick, uh, you know, and in, in some ways actually anticipates the pattern before it comes. Right. So a lot of times we'll see this happen during, you know, as an American election is coming up, that, that rappers are so great in a lot of ways and anticipating what the next turn is. 
And I think, again, that's something that we can be inspired uh, by in terms of how we can think about our own work, right? And we do a lot of this when we're thinking about questions of futurities, right? What does it mean to imagine a world that looks unlike the one that we're currently inhabiting? Great. It's great. If you also um, provided us with a new catchphrase for the historical profession, uh, Francesca, I think um, procrastinators of the world unite might be one way of thinking about what we're doing in terms of uh, addressing historical distance and time, right? So what I like about what you're inviting us to think about is this sense that hip-hop artists are often described as being ahead of the time, right, by journalistic commentary. But often it may be the case that it's not so much that people are ahead of the time, it's that the cultural gatekeepers are behind the time, that they're unable to address the insinuating rhythms of the streets because of, as Dan Veer articulated, their provincialism and their parochialism uh, and their kind of uh, ghettoized lives as middle-class professionals. Right? So I think that's a really important thing to think through. I'm wondering, is there anything else that you'd like to think through or address as it pertains to this idea around time, timeliness, or even extraction, right? So I'm really interested in, maybe I'll phrase it slightly differently. What I love about the comments is this sense of the detective work, the foreignness of hip-hop artists who dig through the crates, of the historian who labors in the archives. But I'm wondering if you could say maybe a little bit more about audience, right? So it's not just that if someone says, I don't hear black resistance in the contemporary moment, they may be hearing black resistance, but they're framing it in a particular way to engage with an audience that might not, right? So it's a slightly different type of uh, situation. It's not that they need to have more careful listening. It's that maybe we need to have a way of acknowledging the ways in which polemic and controversial statements are used to provoke a reaction amongst a public sphere that may be disinclined to pay attention or do the work. So yeah, so if I was to to reframe this maybe more clearly, what is the role of audience for, or how are you conceptualizing the role of the audience for hip-hop artists and for public historians um, or people in the public humanities? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, so I think one thing that's, I, I don't know if it's fair to say deeply misunderstood, but any, you know, it's certainly how it appears to me. One thing that's deeply understood about Black music is that it's not this relationship where music, uh, sorry, messaging flows from the top to the bottom, right? That it's uh, didactic in that manner. Uh, you know, that that's a particular way of conceiving power that I don't think really happens uh, in Black music. Black music, I think, is much more dialogical, not just in the way that ideas, you know, words and phrases are shared, but even in the practice of making the music itself, right? So if we think about, for example, a jazz collective, right? What makes that music, uh, the, you know, what makes the style so incredible is that it's really about, you know, when you, when you jam, for, for those of us who are artists, right? Like when, when I would be in a session jamming, it's, it's about listening and responding, having a conversation, right? So these are instruments that are literally talking to one another. Uh, and in the same way, if we translate that into the contemporary context of hip hop, hip hop depends on the audience, right? And it is about making sure, you know, um, this conversation that's had, for example, live performance where, you know, when an, when an MC says, hey, and the audience responds, ho, right? Uh, and they're creating this rhythmic pattern. It's about, in some ways, ensuring that there's a conversation happening, that, that artists are being listened to and that they in turn are, lis uh, sorry, they, they in turn are listening um, to the audience. So that's a function that's at the center of, of the music that I think oftentimes gets missed. And so because of that misunderstanding uh, in terms of the message, 
there's there's this perception that when when a message does circulate in the mainstream and that it's you know it's provocative and in, and, and in some cases framed as inflammatory, right? There's this perception that the response is either going to be you know in chorus with the artist or there's going to be some kind of pushback. When instead, what what artists are doing in a genre like hip hop is inviting a conversation. They're actually not instead of saying that instead of insinuating that they're offering up simply a series of statements. I think another way to understand what they're doing is that they're offering up a series of questions, right? Um, so by simply stating, you know, when the artists state that they they're seeing things in a particular light. They're inviting us to, to wonder ourselves, to make certain assessments. Uh, are we also seeing those same things? And if we aren't, then what are we seeing? You know, and because black music functions in that way, uh, and because in, in a lot of ways it's misunderstood at the mainstream level, there's a disconnect in terms of how, uh, you know, bodies such as the state, right, will respond to the creation of black musics. Right. And, and this is why we, we often see this repetitive pattern, uh, you know, in, in, certainly in the case of American music, where there is this constant offering up of ideas and then a cycle of clamping down. Right. This punishment scheme that, again, circulates in the mainstream industry, in part because they don't truly, these elites truly don't understand the function and the invitation that black music is constantly um, putting to us as audience members. Right. And, and certainly. Uh, because of the fact that hip, there, there's a practice in hip hop to to study, to do that kind of digging in the crates, uh, because that, that function exists, uh, that constant invitation to come in, to learn about hip hop, to learn about what has inspired hip hop, because hip hop is so much about also looking backward, right, um, at other genres, especially the practice of sampling as an obvious example. Uh, because because so much of hip hop is about that practice, uh, again, black musics are inviting us not just to think about the contemporary, but they're asking us to think about how can we, you know, reconstitute our thinking, um, stretch out our thinking about the past in a way that I think oftentimes is not allowed in the public forum, right? And we can there are many reasons why, um, but but one of them I think in part is is to punish the that that the way in which thinking is a generative process, right? Where we can we can do this dialogical work of building our knowledge, expanding it in conversation. Uh, this is not the way that the power dialectic tends to work, right? Certainly in the mainstream. And so that process of asking, inquiring, challenging one another, listening to other people's ideas in order to expand and challenge our own, uh, is a process really that that isn't uh, certainly frowned upon, I'll say, you know, um, and in some cases, um, especially in the work that I have done, I talk a lot about the ways that that process is punished. Thanks again for being here this morning, for helping us to think and feel more deeply about Black life and livingness, about how we might prolong joy as well as prolong agony by listening carefully, by thinking about how we make strategic interventions, how we might lie in wait, right, to use Fanon's terms as well. Uh, maybe we could end with any last thoughts that you'd like to share, or it could even be, what are you listening to and what are you reading at the moment? Mm. Um, last thoughts. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, after uh, we've, now we've had a, uh, a seven-month-old daughter in our lives, like reading, has kind of you know <laughs> gone into suspension um, um, for a while. But no, listening hasn't stopped. Um, and I guess, uh, well, what we've we've, we've actually, um, you know, uh, despite my my partner's protestations, I've just got a first new television in years because I want to be able a chance to start watching some sports. But one thing. Um, one thing besides the telephone, the thing that gets our attention is every time we stick on the the, the stereo, the sound system behind us, um, and the 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 musician who tends to get her attention very quickly is uh, Luther Vandross. Um, so I've been playing a uh, a lot of Luther Vandross, and I think you know it's a combination of Luther Vandross and I believe if I'm correct, um, uh, Marcus Miller. 
um, on the base that I think seems to uh, get attention. There's been a lot of Vandross um, in circulation. So, yeah, um, but no, my, uh, and also today, actually, we all listened to Earl Sweatshirt's new album um as i uh, that came across my my path so um so yeah it's been a combination of luther and and earl um yeah that's my my parting shot <laughs> I, I think well for me i i try to because i study you know primarily hip-hop you know i'm pretty well living in it every single day so i try to also venture outside of the style as well uh, but in terms of hip-hop i'm very focused on uh, doing the work of, of digging for people that don't tend to have the same kind of visibility. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm one of my favorite current MCs is Locksmith and he comes out of um, California. And so he speaks a lot to those particular conditions. Um, I'm really into uh, Mr. Liff, who is, you know, comes out of Boston. Um if I'm to think outside of hip hop, I, I really, um, I really like, and I've, I've shared the music with Daniel before, but I really like the music of Christian Scott Tunde, who's this really interesting jazz artist. And I think there's, there's really great uh, connections that are being made again. Um, you know, we had this moment in the late 1980s in hip hop, but it's coming back again where there's these really interesting connections between the jazz world and the hip hop world. Uh, so, you know, Christian Scott Atunde, he does this really interesting work around connecting jazz to trap music. Um, you know, the, the work of, um, you know, there's this really great album um, called Dinner Party, right? It's a collection of jazz artists who also work in the medium of hip hop um, and finding ways to connect that instrumentation, but to some of the great work that hip hop artists tend to do, which is this this process of again revealing and concealing, right? So how can we take and that again is you know a long held process in black music creation where because there's this understanding that not all truths can be incredibly transparent because there is the potential of being punished for doing that kind of work, uh, unveiling work. Uh, we we still see that continuing on into the present and uh, so this work of revealing and concealing is, is interesting and happening again in the world of jazz right where you have a certain level of politics happening uh, at at um, at the phase of just instrumentation right what does it mean to create certain sounds that if you have an understanding of the genre you understand are deeply political and philosophical but then also the questions that the artists are asking in the actual lyricism right um, and again one of the things that I'm increasingly becoming more and more interested in when it comes to Black music is not just thinking about it within the limits of politics, right? Because a lot of times, and these are important arguments to make, that culture is political, right, for, for Black communities across the globe. But also, I'm thinking of, of Black musicians as philosophers. They're asking deeply important questions about what it means to be human, right, and what it means to create a common ground with one another. Uh, and what that common ground looks like. How do we establish the connection that we have to each other, right? To bring it back to this question uh, and theme of collectivity, right? How do I make my connection to you, my audience member, right? And what do we share and what don't we share? And what does that reveal about our humanness? Uh, I think are very important questions that Black musicians continue to ask, no matter what genre we're, we're speaking of. And certainly, uh, you know, beyond, beyond, the nation states that we discussed today, right? Because if we were to think about other places in the globe um, and the way that they, they may not be Black artists, but the way that they take up Black music making traditions, they seem to be pressing the form to do that same kind of work, even as they may not belong um, in, that, in that same way to these historical and contemporary communities. It's beautiful. And I guess it, it invites us to end with Toni Morrison, which is always a great place to begin and to end like this notion that black art black music never gives you the full number it, it slaps and it embraces but it it refuses to let itself be uh collected commodified for easy or overly easy digestion i like that so much thanks francesca thanks Tanvia. thanks a lot had a great time listening to francesca it's all about you know I guess to replicate what black music does is to is to listen and learn and exchange and build, you know, 
that's that's a great kind of philosophy that's within the hip hop. A lot of the times when we talk to people in the in the hip hop community, we always say to one another, "Let's build," because that's really what we're doing here. That's the beauty of the ideas that we're sharing. So thank you. I learned I learned a lot. What another wonderful conversation. Aldor Beratov, our associate producer, is also with us. What did you think of the conversation, Aldor? Yeah, no, when listening to the conversation, I had so many thoughts circulating in my mind. Um, but specifically, you know, when talking about the number scheme, um, it was such a thought-provoking kind of way of explaining it. But, you know, even when explaining that the number one means knowledge being the foundation of all existence, this incredible lyricism, it's such a commendable um, form of art. You know, the use of that sort of supreme mathematics, essentially interpreting a deeper meaning to the number system is, is a spectacular way of to approach a concept that seems simplistic at glance, which is a lot of different um a lot of different things in our world, you know, the simplicity of something at first glance, but after listening, and for example, after I listened to Kendrick's album as well, you know, you begin to get get in deeper and deeper. And as mentioned in the podcast, the intention is to pull in the audience deeper and deeper. And even when talking about, you know, the role of audience in, in hip hop artists and hip hop music as well, um, it's interesting to see how using something so out of the ordinary or not as mainstream, for example, like the Supreme Mathematics really does call in the listeners, you know, the logical ways of thinking and the structured ways of thinking, it doesn't mimic um, our world today. So when using these fascinating tactics to call on listeners similar to the supreme mathematics that Kendrick Lamar utilized, it's parallel to the ways we each have our own understanding of the world, our own understanding of knowledge. Um, So when something doesn't add up, quote unquote, as Kendrick was saying, um, as they were saying in the podcast, you know, when something doesn't add up, it makes sense (laughs) because life doesn't add up in that same sense. So yeah, that was kind of what I pulled away from it, but I truly did enjoy. Thanks for sharing these reflections, Alibur. They're really astute and have me thinking about a short film conceived by the Black Studies Program Group at Queen's and produced by Catherine McKittrick, which showcases the diversity and capaciousness of Black Studies. So in the film, we have activists, artists and intellectuals from around the world responding to the prompt Black Studies is dot dot dot. So... There's lots of wonderfully creative responses. Catherine's is Black Studies is groovy. Ashen Crawley's response includes a meditation on the idea that Black Studies engages with the practice of joy in and against sorrow, which is so important for our conversations in this podcast. And when I hear you talk about the revolutionary power of hip hop, and the ideal communicative moments between hip-hop artists and their listeners. I'm reminded of what I was trying to get at in my response as well. So when asked to consider what Black Studies is, or respond to the prompt, Black Studies is dot dot dot, I said something along the lines of, Black Studies is a realm of thought, feeling, and action. It brings reality into focus and invites us to imagine new forms of belonging with time, space, and each other. It listens carefully to artists who slap and embrace. It grants us precious resources to address complex and confounding issues with control. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love for you to speak back, talk back, push us, challenge us to think deeper. And please feel free to rate and review us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and contact us with your questions, comments, and ideas for future episodes. We're on Instagram at Black Studies Podcast and can also be reached at the Black Studies Podcast at gmail.com. We'll be back again next week and hope you have a stimulating, refreshing, lively, radical week filled with joy. Take care. Just turns me up.
Thank you.